This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What's up, guys? We're going to do a podcast. My name is Saul Monali at Saul Monali NBA on Twitter. You're joined by the host of Lockdown Rockets, Ben DeBose. How you doing, man? Doing well. How are you? I'm doing all right. It's been a long time since we had like a sit-down conversation. How you been? Yeah, I know. Pretty good. It, you know, the off-season, it's one of those things, you know, we all get to do other things, you know, family and friends. We drift off into our non-NBA lives. I know we saw each other at the... Uh, it was the Harden community event for JH Town weekend, but right. you know it's kind of cool too. Once the NBA starts up, and then it's kind of like you know our little network of friends and family, whatever you want to call it, amongst Rockets media. You know, I kind of look forward to the kinship of seeing you and everybody else again once uh, training camp starts this coming weekend. It's like the first day of school, right? Like you you haven't Absolutely. seen the, these guys for like months, and everybody's excited to see each other. Everybody's excited to get going, um, and. It, it's just a good feeling. Everybody feels good at the beginning. I'm not not sure about the end, but everybody feels pretty good at the, at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, for this Rockets team, we'll see how it turns out. But this is one of those seasons, you know, with the big change in the offseason, obviously Chris Paul and picks for Russell Westbrook. It's one of those things where I think even the skeptics, everyone has at least some excitement to see how it turns out. So it's one of those, for me, Salman, if... If the Rockets had basically done run it back part two, sure, I think there would have been a path for them to contend and maybe even win a title. But if they had brought back that same group, the same exact Harden and Chris Paul, I think the consensus, even amongst diehard Rockets fans, would have been basically, hey, the regular season is just a means to get to the playoffs and then we'll see what happens. There would have been almost no excitement for the regular season because really the entire thing would have been defined by the postseason. Now, that's still true for this coming year's team, but there's a little bit more excitement because of the change to see what happens. So what I think it's done, you know, training camp, the preseason, certainly the regular season, I think the change has put a little bit more juice in the fan base in terms of the interest and everybody's intrigued to kind of see how this turns out. Right. There's certainly more value in this regular season. And I agree. It would have been a little bit of a drag if the Rockets had brought back the same roster. I think they still would have been really, really good. But, right. Yeah, but, it just wouldn't have been exciting. Right. Yeah, the the energy just would not be there, and it, it would have been a very melancholy season, and everybody would be looking forward to the to postseason pretty much the entire time. But I agree. Um. So let's go ahead and get get into it. Let's talk about Nene. So the Rockets. <laughs> uh. Before all this happened, the Rockets signed Nene to a creative two year, twenty million dollar contract. And the reason it was so creative was because only $2.5 million was guaranteed for this season, with $7.5 million being likely incentives that he's hit over the past few seasons. That includes minutes, yeah. games played, 
and team success. The second year, that contract was completely non-guaranteed. Um, this meant that Houston could theoretically trade him for $10 million or more in sal- salary at the trade deadline, and the other team could get off significant money since so much of that contract was non-guaranteed. Now, what's unfortunate for Houston is that the NBA ruled over the weekend that this contract would only count for $2.5 million in trades. So the league essentially, uh, they didn't actually do this, but they essentially fined Houston $7.5 million because that con- <laughs> that contract is no longer as valuable in trades. And Houston uh, never got the chance to offer him a different contract, which they likely would have. Like They would have gave him like a minimum contract or maybe not even signed him at all if, if they... If, they knew this was against the rules, right? Like they they would have gone back to the negotiating table and worked something else out. Um, they certainly would not have signed this contract. So this was a big blow to the Rockets. Uh, I noticed you felt pretty strongly about this on Twitter. What was your initial reaction <laughs> yeah. to the news? Just a little dubious at the manner at which they went about it. As far as what you said about would they have still brought back the day, I think the answer is yes. They would have still signed him i think they value his leadership and we saw even in the playoffs he can still be a useful player if you know his load is managed properly to use the nba lexicon of these days but i think clearly they would have given him just a straight up minimum deal rather than this creative one because what this creative deal basically mandates is that if the rockets play him at all you know more than 10 games because that first bonus is so low then they would basically have to offload him by the deadline, the same way they did Michael Carter-Williams and Carmelo Anthony, basically pay a bad team to take him, and then you know he'd get waived and bought out to ensure that you know they don't win, make that 52-win plateau, which we all assume, when healthy, the Rockets should be above. So I think if they do end up playing today, that's the one thing that's you know a little bit of a downer about it is that you know you'd almost certainly have to ditch him midway through the year. Whereas, you know, if you gave him a strict minimum deal, which is what I think the Rockets would have done if they could start the process over, then at least you could just have him as, you know, another backup center along with Tyson Chandler and use him however you want and not have to worry about, you know, ditching the guy midseason because, of course, well, number one, you want to pay the bonuses. And then number two, if he's on your roster after February 15th, the second year of that deal becomes guaranteed. So I think that's a little bit disappointing. The reason that I was so frustrated by this, you know, it's very comparable, in my opinion, to the wave of non-guaranteed contracts from a few years ago. They eventually closed that loophole in which you had all these huge deals with these final year guarantees or or non-guarantees, excuse me, that were used for trade purposes. But then they closed it off, the NBA, in collective bargaining. The issue with this, look, I'm not going to pretend that the Rockets didn't draw up this for trade purposes. Of course they did. Now, I'm sure they value Nene, but the primary thing they were thinking about with these bonuses was as the so-called human trade exception. I get it. But the reason it's so frustrating to me, beyond the fact that, you know, obviously it does hurt the Rockets. They don't have the flexibility that they thought they would, although they have a little bit more. Nene has a minimum salary, a little bit above that. You have now Tabo Sepalosha. We'll get to that, another fully guaranteed deal. So you can kind of aggregate those and get not to $10 million, but at least in the vicinity, maybe that Five, playable. And so, right. Yeah, yeah. But then you can aggregate those with, um, you know, your Hartensteins, assuming you keep him around, that kind of stuff. So, you know, it's not as good as, of course, the original NA contract, but at least it's something in terms of filler, not insignificant. But the reason that I was so disappointed in it is that I I really think it's opening Pandora's box and that now anytime there's something that 
you know, basically a smart GM, and it could be Daryl Morey, it could be someone else. But anytime there's something that kind of goes against the spirit of the collective bargaining agreement, but it looks like basically it's finding a loophole, taking advantage of the system before the next, because every CBA has unintended consequences. And you never know, you can try and plan, but you never fully understand until it takes a few years of seeing it in practice. And the reason I think the NBA is going to regret this decision and beyond just how it impacts the Rockets, just as a fan, what's going to be frustrating is that every time there's a situation like this, you're going to see fans, you're going to see other teams, executives wanting the NBA to step in before the issue can be collectively bargained. You're going to see a lot of fans saying, hey, why won't you step in? Because clearly this is not what the CBA intended. I just think it's a very slippery slope. So that's why, you know, I understand why the league and the players association, I understand why it's a delicate issue for them. Basically a player signing a contract with the intent of basically giving himself up for trade purposes. I understand the precedent. I know that even if this contract had been allowed to stand, it would have undoubtedly been closed off the next time there were CBA negotiations. I understand it. I get why. I just think that when you do this without much transparency, you know, without CBA negotiations, without really going very forward about, you know, who was in these meetings, how and why you came to this decision, I think what's going to end up happening over the years is every time there's something, you know, the example I threw up throughout there, not that it's related at all because it's not, but just because it's a very highly controversial thing, the huge salary cap spike a few years ago that allowed the Warriors to get Kevin Durant, not making an analogy of that at all. What I'm saying is that every time there's something that goes against the so-called spirit or intent of the CBA, I think there's going to be a segment of NBA fans and who knows, maybe even executives that say, hey, you know, why doesn't the NBA step in? And so that's why, you know, beyond just the fact that it negatively impacts the Rockets, I think this is going to be a precedent that the NBA might regret down the road because I think it's going to lead to a lot of, you know, teams and fans wanting the league to step in in the future and maybe not this situation, but others. And I think that's a precedent that's very uh, tricky moving forward. Yeah, I'll say my piece now on this podcast. and I'll never talk about it again. Um, <laughs> I just don't like when the league gets upset when teams outsmart their CBA and do the best to gain legal advantages within it. And what I mean by that is, if a team is being really creative and not breaking the rules, I don't believe the NBA has a right to interfere. If they feel like that teams are finding loopholes, well, there's a simple way to fix that. Close the loophole in the next collective bargaining yep. agreement. These kind of rules, these kind of rulings dis- disidentifies creativity. And this isn't the only time I've been upset about the league for doing stuff like this. A few years ago, the league got upset with the Sixers for giving them a black eye for tanking and using the rules for the CBA in their favor. And instead of changing the lottery so a smart general manager couldn't benefit from the current lottery system, they introduced Jerry Colangelo to Sixers ownership. And this essentially spelled the beginning of the end of Sam Hinkie in Philadelphia. They essentially laid the groundwork for Hinkie to be ousted a few years later. And I think that's bullshit. Like, I don't believe the league has any right to screw forward front offices like this just because they get caught with their pants down. This isn't a Rockets thing. If Houston did something wrong and screwed themselves, that's one thing. I would feel no sympathy for them if that was the case. What happened is they did something smart, and the league got mad that they didn't see something like this coming. And I think this—I I agree with you. I think this, is, this sets an unusually heavy and dangerous precedent for contracts moving forward. Like, I, j- I just don't think— that this this is something they want to do because again like you're right fans might like if something happens within the CBA that a front office figures out like and, and like other fans of other teams and you know, rival teams might might 
tweet at the t- the league, might tweet at NBA, whatever. Like, hey, why aren't you coming? Why aren't you stepping in now? Like, it's like I I think right. I, def- I definitely think Rockets fans are going to do that now. Like, I, I definitely yeah, I, I I definitely think there are a bunch of Rockets fans on Twitter just waiting, waiting for for a front office to find a loophole in something. And they're going to get upset because, hey, look, you did this with Nene like a couple years ago. Why aren't you stepping in here? Like, this is not the road I think they want to travel down. Yeah. And what's funny, I had, you know, some Warriors fans naturally, you know, people who don't know the context, you know, getting on me because I use the lack of cap smoothing example from the KD year. Number one, that's a completely different situation. Number two, I'm not suggesting or wasn't suggesting that it should have been blocked. No, what I'm saying is that even though that worked at in particular for Houston, an extreme disadvantage, I'm fine with saying, you know what, that's the breaks. You know, obviously a smoothing proposal was given to the players. Uh, They couldn't come to an agreement. And thus, you know, they had that huge spike and it led to the 73-win Warriors getting Kevin Durant. So it wasn't meant to be a direct comparison and it wasn't meant to be, you know, saying that should have been allowed. No, it's just, you know, sometimes that happens and the way to deal with it, you know, it sucks. And we learn from it moving forward, and I'm guessing, you know, not just the league, but the players as well. I'm guessing there's never going to be a cap spike like that again because everyone remembers what the consequence was, that it tilted the balance of power. Certainly, I think it kept the Rockets from at least one title because a team that was that good was able to easily have max cap room and add Kevin Durant to it. And, you know, I just think, you know, it's unfortunate, but, you know, that's just the way it, it, the cookie crumbled. And, it was appropriate what the response was or lack of response and that, you know, there's an opportunity and, you know, I'm sure both sides will learn from it and you'll deal with it in the next CBA negotiations. Whereas with this stepping in, you know, I really do think it's like opening up Pandora's box. As you said, number one, it kind of disincentivizes creativity. But I, I just think moving forward, it's unfortunate because certainly in Houston, but I think around the league, you know, what's funny to me, Salman, and I'm not going to call any of these guys out individually, but, you know, some of the cap experts who I respect greatly for what they do with the salary cap, you know, I saw some of them basically saying that the league has this right. Like it's in the CBA and basically the CBA, it's a guide of what teams can't do rather than what they can. You know, basically saying that just because something is an outlawed, it doesn't mean it's automatically legal. Well, the issue I have with that is that why didn't anyone from the prior Wednesday when the terms of the NA contract were leaked? I don't know about you. I never I never saw anyone anywhere suggest that it would or could be voided because the reality is no one thought the league would step in. It's not about the merits of could or should or anything like that. No, the reason no one even brought it up as a possibility is because no one thought the league would come down that heavy handed outside of, you know, collectively bargained negotiations so that's why you know some of the excuse making is too strong but some of the rationalizing i've seen after the fact look it's within the league's rights you know it's their league and you know like any uh organization there's always going to be some degree of executive power that you know the people in front of it are going to have to use in special circumstances but the issue with it is of course when you use that kind of executive power executive order however you want to call it then unless you're very open and transparent about what that process is, what the circumstances are, then people are then going to want to make more exceptions. You know, why isn't this worthy of that type of intervention? And so I think we're on the same page. That's why this is really going to be tough, I think, for the NBA moving forward, certainly with this fan base. But I think others, too, you know, the Rockets are a contender. And I think certainly there's a lot of other fan bases that are 
pleased that the Rockets aren't going to have a trade ship to that extent. So now, you know, every time some other smart GM finds a loophole, then you're going to see a lot of people tweeting at the league office asking them to do the same thing. And so, like I said, negatively impacts the Rockets, but more going forward, I'm just a little bit surprised that the NBA, a league that's usually very transparent. I mean, you know me, like I follow, you know, the NBA, but of course I follow Major League Baseball and the NFL as well. And I think led by Adam Silver, the NBA is usually much more progressive, transparent in their dealings than the other two major uh, U.S. leagues. This was a rare exception. I'm not going to say that it undoes that it undoes all the goodwill that I would say, especially in the silver era, that they've or should have generated with fans. But it is, I think, it's a curious misstep, and I think we can leave it at that. Yeah, and it's one thing if like so. I, I understand Devil's Advocate, where like, okay, the CBA is a few years away. Like, since the Rockets did this this season, like, next season, there's going to be a bunch of different general managers trying to create sure. a, a contract like this. I get that. But if you really believe that this was against the spirit of the rules, how about just void the contract? Ha- like, right. ha- have both parties go away from the contract. But by doing this, you, you are fining the Rockets $7.5 million. Like this is like this is money that they won't be able to use anymore. Like they lost their t- their non taxpayer mid level exception. That's gone now. Like that that yeah. that's, that's another tool that they're not going to be able to use at the buyout market because the league decided to you know what we're going to guarantee this contract and you can't trade it. Like that like that yeah that, that that's like that that's the 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 duality in this the situation. Like it's not just that they lost that trade chip, but they also can't get out of the contract. They're stuck with it until February, where they're where they're likely going to cut Nene, and it, it it creates like a black like a like a dark cloud over Nene's season because like the Rockets are undoubtedly going to watch how they use Nene. Like they might not play him to like when they want to play him like they might play like Isaiah Hardenstein some days because they realize Nene's contract situation's tricky they might want to you know sure. walk around it and you know like wait until February and they can wipe their hands clean of it like like they might this might damage the way Nene is used this season i just think this is this is not something the league wants to do uh, it's it's not a Houston thing. Like I just think front offices are gonna find like th- this isn't gonna stop front offices from being creative. Like like, like there's gonna be other like Sam Presti uh, and like all the other creative general managers in the NBA. They're yep. gonna find stuff within the CBA, and yep. it, when they find stuff like this, kind of sets a really dangerous precedent. Like are are you gonna are you gonna outlaw stuff then? Like are are you just gonna tell them they can't do this because oh well, we didn't think this was even possible? Like I don't think that's something they want to do. Yeah. And, you know, I've I say this all the time whenever someone pushes back, basically saying, well, you know, this is the rule. Well, as a, you know, a fan or in our case, you know, media member covering the league, you don't have to like it. You know, yes, I understand. But then the CBA, you know, they're within the rights to step in. They basically have this authority. And it sounds like that they basically use the circumvention argument, which is one of two they could have hypothetically used. Well, I, I mean, the issue is it within their power? Yes, it's totally legal, but, you know, we're not required to just kind of shrug our shoulders and say, well, because it's legal, they can. No, you can do a lot of stuff. But in this case, to step in this heavy handed, it's going to be a very uh, tricky precedent moving forward, because I think Rockets fans in particular are going to feel very uh, frustrated. And and in my opinion, rightfully so, if, you know, Sam Presti or uh, R.C. Buford or whoever it is, whatever. Yeah. yeah, the, The next smart GM that finds another loophole, if the NBA doesn't similarly step in before the next round of CBA negotiations. So 
yeah, it, it, it's frustrating. And, you know, I suspect as far as the Rockets are concerned, they'll be able to mitigate the impact because, you know, if they need to play Nene, my hunch is that they still will. But what, but what it does do, it basically mandates that, you know, you're going to have to save a little bit of your cash allotment to dump him at the deadline to, you know, a bad team that would then cut him and make sure he doesn't hit that wins incentive. You know, uh, whereas at the very least, what they could have done is voided the entire contract and then let the Rockets re-sign him to a clean minimum, which is, you know, less for luxury tax purposes. And, of course, you don't have this awkward situation of, well, you know, now they've got to ditch him at the deadline. So what basically at this point, between the second year, making sure that's not guaranteed and not hitting the bonuses, today's basically become, you know, uh, I guess three-fifths of the year player. I think it's about 60% of the year that's elapsed by the trade deadline. So, yeah, it's just very unfortunate because the reason the Rockets were willing to make that trade off is because of the upside in his potential trade value. And so now they don't have really the upside, but they still have the downside of, hey, you know, he's back, but he's basically only a 60 percent of the year player. And by the way, you probably got to save at least a little bit of cash to make sure you can dump him so that you're not owed those bonuses. Yeah, I I, I would be surprised if Nene plays over 20 games this season. Like, like, like it's the. In general, they don't play Nene a lot to begin with, but now that they have this going like over their head, like they they may be cautious yeah. in the way they use him, and they have Tyson Chandler, sure. so they so they sure. don't have to use him, um, right? And, and for what it's worth, I hope it's not a precedent. I I, I hope this is a one off thing. Like the the league understands, like yeah, we can't do this moving forward. This is something that we just did in this particular situation because I want front offices to be creative. Like I want right. I want the best teams to come up with the smartest strategies to to better, yep. better themselves. I I hope this is a one off thing. Um. So let's let's go ahead and move on to Tabo Cephalosha. The Rockets added Tabo Cephalosha this weekend to a one year minimum salary. And this isn't a controversial take, but I really like this move for Houston. Like some people are comparing this move to the Rockets getting Luke and Mute a couple years ago for that steal of a contract, and I don't think it's quite on that level. But I think this has the potential to be their best dollar for dollar value contract of the summer. Like, like he's a good player, gave Utah solid minutes last year. Like he played, I think he played like 16 minutes per game, and the, yeah. the, the Jazz were like six points better per 100 possessions on defense when Seth Losha was on the floor. He's a, he, he can shoot, he can contribute in a lot of ways for this Rockets team, who's who is you know light on wing depth, and this can help them a lot. Like this is a nice placeholder kind of player. Um, if the Rockets do indeed uh, look for another wing at the at the buyout market, yeah, I think it's a very savvy signing. You know, I remember, uh, and of course, per forty eight stats are tricky because you know Tabo's thirty five now. He can't play those types of minutes. But uh, David Weiner, Bima Thug on Twitter, did a you know player A, player B type comparison in July, and the two players were Tabo and Andre Iguodala. And at least from an efficiency standpoint, Tabo was better. And we know the Rockets have had a lot of interest in. Iggy, just for various reasons, haven't been able to get that to the finish line, possibly depending on Memphis, depending on who you believe, asking for the moon in these negotiations after getting a first-run pick to take him on. But because you know the Rockets have been interested in Iguodala, you know they identify perimeter defense and a little bit of size as a need. He's six foot seven, but he's really long. And you know, you think about it. I, I know you listened to that podcast that Mike D'Antoni did with uh, Craig Ackerman a week or so ago, and he talked about you, you know he. The two themes that D'Antoni said were the the key for the season, number one, you know, pace, because obviously to play to Russell Westbrook's strengths as opposed to Chris Paul, you're going to have to be a faster paced team. You know, if you're 27th in the league in pace with Russell Westbrook, it's a fish out of water. 
But the other one is defensive rebounding. You know that when the Rockets won 65 games two years ago, they were, I think, a top 10 or at least close to that defensive rebounding. Last year, they declined to near the bottom. And the first thing that Mike D'Antoni cited in that interview was the absence of Trevor Ariza and then having to start Eric Gordon at the three. And, it, you know, right now, later in the interview, you talked about they have Daniel House. He's an athletic wing. But if you think about it, the Daniel House, his sample size is small. Now, I know him falling out of the rotation in the playoffs. You know, he had that uh, toe injury, I believe. Maybe that played into it. But I think some of it, you know, it's a small sample. The moment was a little big for him. And the reality is, you know, as much as we like his talent, he's not really that proven. And so what this does, this gives you a hedge on House and potentially depth as well. Because before this, House was really the one guy that you could point to that's in that, you know, I'd say six foot six to six foot eight range that's mobile enough to play the two, the three, whatever it may be. Of course, the four at times, given the length, and actually defend some of these athletic rangy wings. You always need more than one of those. I think you especially need more than one when the only guy you can point to, Daniel House, still has a really small sample as far as uh, the typical NBA life cycle. And, you know, we all want to believe in him, but at the same time, you can't take, you know, I think it'd be a mistake to take a leap of faith and say, wow, we can 100% pencil in Daniel House as a quality 25 to 30 minutes per game player. So I think Tabo provides you a lot of insurance. I agree that he's probably not Luke from two years ago, only because, you know, Luke was 29 or 30. So he was the kind of guy, you know, you could stretch him to 25 minutes a game uh, if you needed to, and he could handle that. Tabo, at this stage of his career, you know, I think this is year 14. I think you're probably looking at, you know, 12 to 15 minutes a game. But for that role, yeah, he, you know, clearly the Rockets identified length and wing defense as a need. He fits. And then I think, you know, he's old, but he's not too old at 35. Obviously, he's got the experience. He hasn't played with the Rockets, so he's played with James Harden and Russell Westbrook before in Oklahoma City. So there's some trust there. He was at minicamp last week in Las Vegas with the team. But I think he's sort of in that sweet spot in which you can basically slide him into the role that Iman Shumpert was in in the playoffs, which is... You know, this defender where if the matchup is advantageous, then you can play him. But if there's a game in which he doesn't play much, then he's probably not going to make a fuss. There's not going to be a chemistry risk. You know, I think that's sort of what the Rockets were hoping for. You know, definitely, I think there's other quality guys that were available for the minimum this summer with the cap room being spent relatively early. But I think a lot of those guys, you know, they wanted a very set role. You know, I'm going to come in and I'm going to play 20 minutes a night. This is how I'm going to be used because, of course, they're trying to set themselves up for their next contract. I think Tavo's at the right point in his career. You know, he's played uh, 14 years. He's 35 years old. He wants to win. I think, you know, he's comfortable in his own skin. If there's a matchup where, you know, they want more Gerald Green, a little bit more offense and less, you know, wing defense, then if he gets an occasional DNP or, you know, only six minutes in the game for whatever reason, I think he's okay with that. I think that's exactly what the Rockets were looking for. A guy who clearly identifies at least short term, you know, the 82 game season is a grind. And I think you hit the nail on the head by saying that, you know, maybe Tabo isn't in the playoff rotation. We'll see what happens once you get to buyout season. Maybe Iguodala resurfaces as a target, that kind of thing. But at the very least, as we saw a year ago when they started 11 and 14, the start matters. You can't just bank on adding these guys during the season, because even if you do, like they added Rivers and House last year, well, those early games really count. And that's what got the Rockets in the hole that led to them being the number four team in the playoffs. So that's where I really see uh, Tabo as a good signing. 
you know, time will tell if he's impactful enough to be in the playoff rotation. But even if all he does is basically buy you 50, 55 games until the deadline when you get maybe a younger, better option as far as your defensive perimeter wing, he's established enough. And I think he's also at that perfect age. He's not too old. Yet, at the same time, he's not so young that he's going to make a fuss if he's not in the rotation. I think he's a pretty solid fit. Got the experience with Harden and Westbrook, and he checks the box of what they've clearly been looking for uh, all offseason with more perimeter defense. Yeah, and this allows the Rockets to be more creative with their lineups, which they haven't been able to be for a while now. Uh, in 2017-18, like, they, they were unbelievably creative with their lineups because they had so many like really good wing defenders. They had P.J. Tucker, they had Trevor Ariza, they had Luke Mbamute, and they had Eric Gordon if they wanted to play Eric Gordon uh, and play and play really small like they, they could be they were allowed to be created with their lineups and like they couldn't last year because they just didn't have that same depth at the wing position now they can and I you're right like he's not in Bamute people forget in Bamute was a starter the year before he came to use he was a starter for the Clippers and right. um, and you know Tabo was coming off the bench playing 16 minutes a game which is pretty good like if you want to make a comparison to some to a signing the Rockets have made like I, I would compare this to kind of like the first year they signed an A, like still has a I lot think that's of fair. yeah, still has a lot of juice, a little up there in age, but can can contribute to a good team, uh, can be a a good role model to younger players. Like I think like Daniel House could learn a lot from Tabo Tafalosha, and like the same like you could say the same thing back then with Nene and Clint Capella. Like this is a nice holdover kind of signing, and if he can get you playoff minutes, that's good. If if not, like this is at least you know. Some someone who can take up those Iman Shepard minutes that you were missing, and you know, give you some Gerald Green minutes because th- that was a concern of mine going into this season. Like too much Gerald Green is not a good thing, uh, and right. and this gives you some insurance. Like you don't have to play, you don't have to lean on him too much. Mike D'Antoni has a bad habit of leaning on veterans too much, and this gives you a defensively capable veteran to lean on. And so I think that's going to do Houston pretty well. Um, and you mentioned uh, how they slipped a lot in defensive rebounding. Like they were fourth in 2017-18. Like that, that they dropped to 29. They dropped 25 spots. And, yeah. And, and 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 with defensive rebounding percentages, you know, a couple of rebounds here and there can make up the difference in like 10 spots. But that's still a huge drop. So I, they need as much defense as they can going into this season if they really want to start strong. Uh, I think that like Mike D'Antoni was was pretty was pretty prescient in saying that that's their biggest concern going into training camp. I think that's something that they need to focus on. And I'm interested to see how Elston Turner emphasizes defense. Like, does he decide to play a different way? Are the Rockets still going to switch as much as they did in the past? Yep. Like that's. That's someone I, I'll be interested to see if uh, the, Mike D'Antoni has talked to Elston Turner enough to where he knows this, so we can talk to him about it at media day. Because, like, there's the, you know there's an assumption out there that the Rockets are going to play the same, but they replaced their entire defensive coaching staff. Like they they might play a little bit more conservative. They might you know they might play a drop back scheme. They might not switch as much as they did before. They might switch in certain situations. They might. They might still be the same switching team, but we have no idea. So I'm interested to see what the Rockets are going to do here going into the season with all this winged up because this gives them the versatility to be more creative with their lineups. And going into playoffs, I think creativity with lineups is a huge, huge advantage. Yeah, I think that's something that definitely media day, the first couple of days of training camp will be a focus because, you know, Elston Turner, there hasn't really been any media availability at all. It's not like they're not going to do a press conference for an assistant coach. I understand that. But then, you know, the whole offseason, we really haven't had a true media availability with uh, Mike D'Antoni. You know, there's been small interviews here and there, like the podcast I referenced with Craig Ackerman. 
And I think he did an interview with ESPN at one point. But those tend to be very, you know, 30,000 foot view about the offseason as a whole. Obviously, the number one storyline is going to be the integration of Russell Westbrook. But you start training camp, you know, yeah, maybe we could talk to Elston. I'm sure we will at some point. But then, you know, media day, the first two days of camp, you know, that's perfect time to ask, you know, what the defense is going to be like. Because, you know, we talked towards the end of last season. I think it's still an open question. You know, how much are they going to switch? I mean, a lot of the switching scheme, of course, was developed in response to the Kevin Durant Warriors, which are no more. And now, you know, you're leading threats, I guess, in terms of the playoffs. I think probably your biggest competition is the Clippers and the Lakers. You know, I respect the Nuggets and the Jazz a lot, but I still think those are slightly more regular season teams than true playoff threats. But, you know, does their personnel lend to the same degree of switching? Or do you want to get a little you know, more of a hybrid in which, you know, you look at some traditional angles more. That's one of those things that I think media day, you know, we haven't had an opportunity to really talk to these guys in a few months. And so now you've got the new coaching staff, you've got new personnel. And I guess more importantly than anything, you've got completely different competition. It's not about the Warriors anymore. You've got all these other teams now. And so, yeah, you're right. That might be a change, but you know, that's why the addition, you know, going back to Tabo is so important because it just gives you a lot more flexibility, you know, getting a guy, you know, when you're looking at, you know, I kind of look at Tabo, you know, the same tier as Gerald Green in terms of somewhere between eight and 10 on your depth chart. Well, what you want when you're filling out your depth chart, once you get beyond your clear top seven or eight in the rotation, you want guys that do different things so that based on the matchup, who you play, what you need in a given game, you know, you don't have guys that are duplicates of each other. You have different skill sets. And so I really like, you know, we know the role that Gerald Green has and Tabo you know, he's fairly similar in terms of his body type, but he brings you a completely different style of play. So I think that'll fit pretty well in terms of giving the Rockets a different option that depending on the matchup they can turn to. Yeah. So let's move on to media day. Um, I ask this question every year, but I think it's important. Like, can you explain what media day is for the listeners? Yeah. Media day, it's the day before training camp. And basically, you know, the last couple of years now it happens in the uh, Post Oak Hotel, which is of course, owned by a relatively relatively new owner, Tillman Fertitta. But what it is, is an opportunity to basically check in with all the key players, uh, owner, GM, coach, and then most of your marquee players, basically about what they did over the summer and what their goals are for the season. And there's a couple of things that are unique about it, because I'm sure to some listening, like, how is this different than, you know, you go to a game or to a practice and you talk to these guys? Well, first off, it's one of the few chances that we all have collectively as a media group to talk to Tillman Fertitta and Daryl Morey. Like, you know, they'll grant a few individual interviews on occasions. I've been lucky enough to have Daryl on my podcast before, but it's kind of like subject to their control because they're not required to be, you know, open to us the same way that the coaches and the players are. So in terms of Tillman and Daryl, you know, in, in terms of actually knowing that you can talk to these guys, that's honestly one of the few opportunities that you know 100% you can talk to these guys because otherwise, you know, they're not really required throughout the season to do these uh, media availabilities. Generally, just, you know, like I said, if there's a marquee trade acquisition, you know, you'll hear from Daryl. And of course, you know, we hear from Tillman, like after uh, game six last year, the loss to the Warriors when the season was over, that type of thing. But you get to talk to the highest level of the organization. That's kind of rare. And you don't get to do that a lot throughout the grind of the season. The other thing that's kind of unique and fun about it is that it's the one time that you can talk, you know, what I consider a 30,000 foot view, big picture goals. You know, you can talk about, you know, obviously there'll be a lot of questions about the acquisition of Russell Westbrook. You can talk about 
what the player's been working on this summer, their outlook for the team, the league, whatever it may be. Once training camp starts, and especially the preseason and regular season, the questions, even though we do get to talk to these guys, they're going to be inherently day-to-day. You know, It's going to be how do you beat the team that's due up that night or the team that's due up next or what did we do right or what did we do wrong? You know, you're going to get into the weeds, which, you know, there's some fun in that, but it's tough to take a step back. Media day is fun because obviously there hasn't been any activity yet. So it's the one time that you can actually kind of take that 30,000 foot view with anyone in the organization or any of the marquee players from the, you know, the staff, the executives on down to James Harden, Russell Westbrook, Eric Gordon, Clint Capella, those guys, and talk to them big picture about, you know, the season, their careers, that kind of stuff. You just get a much more, uh, thorough overview as opposed to once you know the preseason and regular season starts it's going to get much more in the weeds of you know day to day week to week this is the opportunity to kind of talk to them bigger picture and sometimes you get some more illuminating answers that way yeah and it it really is the first day of school in that everybody's in a good mood like everybody's in a good mood and like the record zero zero you get some of the best quotes on media day like you're not going to get the same quote from Mike D'Antoni on from from media today that you are, that you are on like game fifty two of the regular season. You're you're gonna get much more broader, much more as you said, big picture big picture answers, and you get to ask essentially whatever the hell you want. And you know you may not get the answer you want, but you're gonna get a much better answer than if you asked in the regular season. Yeah, absolutely. Because yeah, during the season, there's that easy spin of you know we're just worried about our next opponent. That kind of thing. We've got to clean it up. Like there's Coach always speak. something that you can point to. Yep, right. exactly. Whereas media day, that's the chance to sometimes get more thorough, revealing answers because you don't have that immediate pivot to you know what's next on the schedule. So, who is the number one guy that you want to interview this uh, this media day, and why? Like, is there someone you have circled on a piece of paper that you really like? I I got to interview this guy. Yeah. So, to, and I won't get a one-on-one, of course. I'll be with everybody else because I think the only people to get the big names one-on-one, you know, I'm not quite at that level yet, uh, like the Tim McMahons of the world. But the one that I have circled is Russell Westbrook for two reasons. Number one, Murphy's Law. I wasn't at the press conference. Uh, you know, my wife and I, we had planned a vacation. And, you know, I thought late July, you know, that's the perfect time, you know, at NBA circles to – you know, kind of unplug for a few days. Well, as it turns out, because of logistics, the trade didn't get done. The Rockets for Westbrook until it was leaked in the 11th. And then, of course, they tried to expand the trade, didn't even formalize it until that third week of July. Blah, blah, blah. Luck would have it. I wasn't there for the press conference. But the other reason, besides just my own kind of selfishly uh, being sad that I missed out on the initial Russ press conference. Of course, he's a great quote. He's in a good mood, at least to start the year. We'll see how things happen. Hopefully his relationship with the Houston media is better than it turned out in Oklahoma City. But the big question that I have, and you know, maybe it's not just Russ, I'm sure you can ask Mike D'Antoni as well, but is he going to be ready to go from day one of training camp? That's the big question that I have because you know we've seen a ton of videos this offseason, the mini camps, the workouts. As I'm sure you've noticed, you don't see much in the way of Russ playing actual basketball. You know, we've seen him working out, but we haven't seen that much in the way of him on the court in five on fives we know he had the knee scope in may and the reason i asked that i'm not saying that you know that he's not going to be ready for the season i firmly believe he'll be out there when the rockets open the season late october against the milwaukee bucks i think he knows how to manage this condition and i think that's why he had the knee scope in may this year as opposed to uh september a year ago but the reason i mention it 
you know, there's lots of evidence that players who have these knee scopes, you know, it can take a toll, particularly on their shooting. And, you know, you look at Russ a year ago, it was a down year for him shooting the ball, which, you know, with James Harden, his ability to shoot, Russ, that is, is going to be all the more important this year. He's going to get these open looks. When you actually look month by month at Russ's season last year, the vast majority of the reason that he was so bad from a shooting perspective was the start to the year right after that knee scope. As the season moved along, especially after the All-Star break, he was pretty good. Just the overall numbers suffered because to start the year, and I'm guessing it had a lot to do with that scope. He wasn't quite himself. You know, he missed training camp. He missed the preseason, missed the first couple of games of the regular season. And the most logical explanation for why, you know, October through December, he really sort of slumped is because he wasn't 100% or he was working his way back. And to this point in the offseason, we haven't, at least in the videos, seen him in those five-on-fives. Now, you know, I think the logical thing to believe is that he's just being cautious and that, you know, when it's ready, he knows that he missed training camp in preseason a year ago. And I'm guessing he doesn't want to go through that again this year. But at the same time, we're waiting to see it. And to me, that's, you know, the big question. You know, somebody asked him, I think, once in the July press conference about the knee. And he said, yeah, I'll be ready. OK, now it's two months later. Now the season or, or at least the training camp portion is actually going to start are you ready to cut it loose? I think he is. I hope he is. But to me, that's the big question, because to this point, I haven't seen him really in those five on five drills. And if you look, you know, at kind of the hierarchy or the just the overall trend line of his season a year ago, I think the slow start had a lot to do with that knee. And so in terms of his success this year in Houston, you want to believe that he's unlike last year, going to be 100 percent ready to go once the season starts this year. Yeah, that's a good answer. The guy I want to talk to is Clint Capella. And uh, the reason for this is if there's anybody on the Rockets that's had a rough, rough summer, it's, Clint, it's Clint Capella. Like, the fan base completely turned on him. Like, they're, like I, if you remember going back to when the Rockets were in conversations with Jimmy Butler, like, people were ready to ship Clint Capella off, like, tomorrow. Yep. Like it, it, the fan base completely turned on him. Like they they were talking about dumping his salary as if it was like some sort of absorptive amount that the Rockets had to get rid of. And the reality is, like I, I still think he's a good player, and he's still just twenty five years old. And like this is kind of a critical po- like point in his career. Like this is like all eyes are on him. Like how do you respond to the kind of postseason you had last year? Like you you, you didn't perform well in that Warrior series. Uh, you, you looked kind of out of shape during the season. Like you couldn't switch as well as you did the season prior. Like you 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 just had sort of a down year in general. And I want to, I want to know how he responds to that. I want to know, like, like, is he pissed off? Is he angry? Like, like I, I mentioned Kelly, Kelly Eco's story, uh, from earlier this summer where like some, somebody vandalized his car. Like, and I, yep. I, I, I want to know, like, it, has that stuff kind of been motivating to him? Is he ready to go into training camp pissed off and ready to tear some, tear someone's heart out? And like he is someone I think could make or break Houston season because you know everybody's talking about Westbrook, everybody's talking about like Daniel House, Clint Capella is the the, we're the one consistent, the guy that's always been there, and we've, we've we've sort of been watching, waiting for him to take another another step. You know, make, can he become kind of a fringe All Star type of player? And, and you know, this is the kind of season where like if if you're going to become that kind of player, this is it, man. Like you have plenty of of talent surrounding you, you have plenty of willing passers around you, you have. You have every opportunity to go and get this and become that elite level defender. Are you going to go and get it? 
And I, I'm just interested to see how he responds to the kind of crap he had to deal with this summer. Yeah, definitely. You hope it motivates him defensively. You know, a lot of it has to do with the scheme, too. You know, how much switching do they want to do? Do they want to get back to him more as a traditional rim protector? Some of that's out of his control. But I think, yeah, it's a huge year for him to see how he responds. The playoff performance was obviously below his standard. And the other thing, too, if he's right, he could have such a big year now that you have Russell Westbrook with James Harden. I'm sure you got this all the time on Twitter, too. But like one of the more popular questions that I get throughout the two years or got of Chris Paul with the Rockets. Why don't you have, you know, Chris Paul, this all-time great passer, Hall of Famer, why isn't he connecting with Capella on these alley-oops? Because, of course, you see Harden do it a lot. And my theory on that, and that in my opinion, it makes a lot of sense, is that for all of Chris Paul's genius as a passer, the way alley-oops typically come is that when a guy is coming downhill that the defense really fears – that's when that second defender feels they have to come over and cut off. And I think between Chris Paul's, number one, lack of size, but also at this point in his career, his diminishing explosiveness, I don't know that Chris Paul off the dribble put that fear into opposing defenses where, you know, if he's doing something off the dribble, okay, that second help defender has got to come. We both know Russell Westbrook puts that fear in opposing defenses when he's going downhill. And so you have Clint Capella out of that dunker slot. Now, in my opinion, you don't just have one guy in James Harden who can break down the defense off the dribble, make that second defender commit, and then potentially have a lob for Clint Capella. You've got two of those guys. So, yeah, this is a year in which, on paper, there are no excuses. You know, from all we've seen offseason, we know he played with uh, Team Switzerland in Eurobasket play. We've seen him working out a lot. He looks to be in good shape. He's ready to go. But, yeah, this is a year coming up the playoff run. He should be inspired. And then... With the addition of Russell Westbrook, more than any other player, I think he's the one that could benefit relative to a season ago from Westbrook's presence. And yeah, it's just up to him to go out there and take advantage. Yeah, and that synergy that Westbrook had with Steven Adams cannot be ignored. Like, he had such a great chemistry with Steven Adams. And there's a, there's, a, there's a bit of a question. Can he have that same sort of synergy with Clint Capella here in Houston? You know, like, Clint Capella was yeah. a little a little bit more of an above-the-rim kind of finisher than Steven Adams was. And maybe maybe that's something that Westbrook can connect with a little bit more. And, you know, Clint Capella's really good in transition if he wants to be. Like, it some of the more ridiculous passes that James Harden makes like that like it, it kind of breaks my brain why he's throwing these passes are the ones in transition where Clint Capella's oh, yeah. way ahead of the break like way ahead of the break and cherry picking a little bit but he's he, he's he's way ahead of everybody and he grabs these ridiculous passes and gets these easy layups in transition like the Rockets are going to be more of a transition team this year that's going to benefit him if if he's willing to run with the with the Rockets like if he's in, if he's in that elite shape and he and he can candle right. that like that's going to be something where the where he can feast on like these easy transition buckets. Like that's something that other big men can't do. Like a lot of big men can't run the floor like Clint Capella. Like Clint Capella the, can run the floor. Like he can run. And, yep. And quickly another point that I would get to with Capella and maybe the Rockets have already thought about this, but it's a question that you could be asked in media day. I'd be fine dialing down Capella's minutes a little bit to closer to 30 rather than the 34 he was at last year if it means he can be more active in transition. You know, I think a part of last year, the reason he played so much, you know, it was unprecedented. I'm sure you remember, like, until last year, he'd never played more than 27 minutes in a game. Stamina was always a question. Then last year, he's up to 34, 35, this, these high totals. I think because, you know, they got to that slow start. Nene was obviously getting older, and they just felt like they had to grind and get every single win, however it could come. 
this year, you know, hopefully Tyson Chandler's a good addition. Hopefully Anthony Bennett proves capable as, you know, a stretch big. But maybe the key, you know, beyond just his own attitude, I'd be open to dialing him back slightly to maybe, you know, 30 a game in hopes that, you know, if he goes, say, for eight-minute burst in, you know, the first and third quarters, whatever it may be, rather than 10-minute burst, and I'm just speaking hypothetically, you know, it could be six versus eight, whatever it may be, but if you give him slightly smaller burst, maybe that's the key to getting him more active uh, to take advantage in transition and also maybe to be a little more engaged in terms of his perimeter defense and his ability to move in space. Yeah, so what's one question that's been eating at you all summer that you haven't had the chance to ask the Rockets like, like, and you want to throw out on media day? What's that question that's biting at you? Uh, okay, so I told you the Westbrook thing. Uh, I definitely want to ask Daryl about the Nene situation, but I guess he's going to kind of, you know, give a non-answer to that because I don't think he wants to get in a public squabble with the NBA. It's worth the effort, but... You know, I kind of doubt Daryl says too much on that front. Um, the one thing that as a diehard Rockets fan that I would want to get an answer from, I think I'd like to ask uh, Tillman specifically about the luxury. Oh, tax. you stole mine. You stole yeah. mine. Yeah, put yeah, go ahead. The, yeah, put it on the record. You know, I think a lot of this stuff is circumstantial and overblown. Uh, it, you know, I think a lot of what happened last year was basically once the bigger pursuits didn't work out, Jimmy Butler, then uh, who was it? Jermichael Green and Garrett Temple at the deadline. When the only thing standing between them and the luxury tax was basically James Ennis. You know, I think they were kind of like, hey, as what would have been like your 10th man, I think they said, fine, let's get under. Okay, well, that's fine. But, you, you know, that's obviously with a new owner going to drive some folks I don't know if it'll drive them crazy, but at least get some skepticism. So, you know, this oh, it, dro- it drove them crazy. It drove them yeah, crazy. Okay, let's be fair. Yeah. So, uh, you, you know, they're trending, it looks like, although it's not 100% to be over the tax. Daryl said he has full authorization, but that's from Daryl. You know, let's ask, and we know Tillman, you know, we know the media circuit he's been on the last couple of weeks promoting his new book. You, you know, I, you know, let, let's put it on the record. What is the luxury tax? And I'm sure he'll say that they're open to paying it. But let's just, you know, he's a guy, he doesn't necessarily have the uh, biggest filter, which is great for us in the media because he is pretty open about things. You know, let's just get it out in the open because it's kind of the, you know, the elephant in the room, so to speak. Yeah, and uh, I mentioned how this was a critical juncture for Clint Capella um, this season. And I feel that same way about about Tillman Fertitta as an owner. Like sure. this, this is that critical juncture. Like, like you guys... I mean, when he bought the team, he said that he was committed to paying whatever it takes to win a championship. And this is kind of what it takes. Like, you have to get into the luxury tax at some point. And I feel like when that that Westbrook trade went down, it kind of gave the Rockets an opportunity to be like, you know what? Like, we can delay this now. Like, we don't have have to pay the luxury tax for another year since the last three years of Westbrook's contract. We can can narrowly miss it. And I feel like you know, if you're if you're Rockets fans, you have to justifiably be like, yeah, no, that's that's unacceptable. That's unacceptable. I want an owner that's willing to pay the luxury tax. I want an owner that's all in, that's committed. This has been sort of the the summer of Tillman Fertitta. A lot of questions surrounding Tillman Fertitta. He's been on this crazy media circus, uh, been very vocal. We're starting to learn a lot more about his style as an owner. Like he he's obviously not the same as Leslie Alexander kind of hovering around in the shadows, like he is very vocal, very Mark Cuban-esque in that way. And like 
you know, one thing you could say about Mark Cuban, that guy was willing to pay. That guy was yep. willing to pay for his rosters and pay to do whatever it takes to improve the, the team. And this is kind of that, that point for Tillman. Like, I know we're still in his early years as an owner, but the Rockets have a prime opportunity here. He he knew what kind of situation the Rockets were when he bought the team. He knew the Rockets were extremely good. He knew that roster was going to be extremely expensive going forward. And this is kind of what, like, the 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 critical question hovering over the Rockets, are they going to pay the taxes here? Because, you know, this Nene situation, I think it's interesting because this kind of forces them, this kind of gives them an excuse, you know, like, we can't do a creative trade and still may stay under the luxury tax anymore. Like that, like that, that, that avenue is gone since the league outlawed, outlawed Nene's tradeability in that contract. So now the only way we can realistically see ourselves get significantly better is by doing something at the trade deadline that puts us deep into the luxury tax. So I'm interested to see if they do that or if they choose to go the route of last year and sign someone for the minimum and, you know, go the the buyout market route. And if if they do that, like that's that's understandably going to piss a lot of Rockets fans off. Like it's it's gonna it, it is like this is this is year two, uh, year three of his ownership, year two where they realistically had a chance to go into the luxury tax. And if they avoid it this year, there's going to be like an out- onslaught. There's going to be a lot of fans questioning his commitment. And, and my guess is that he'll he'll end up paying it. But it, it's absolutely a fair question because you know one of the comments that stuck out to me from his interview circuit uh, a couple of weeks ago, or really this past week was the one that, well, you know, if we don't win in the next three or four years, you know, we're not going to win in the next 10. And that's probably true because they put so much of an investment into this team. And, you know, typically, you know, rebuilding even in a big market like Houston is at least a somewhat lengthy process. So you're really looking with Harden, Westbrook, now Gordon under contract, at least uh, Capella as well for at least three more years, most of those guys four. I mean, you've got a few years with them, but it goes without saying that with Harden, Westbrook, and Gordon all 30 years old, it's a lot easier with those guys at 30 than it is with those guys at 32 or 33. So you're looking, you know, Tillman said it himself. You know, if you're going to win a title, it's, you know, it's not going to be some day down the road. It's now. It's the next three or four years. And then empirically, even within those three or four years, you objectively have to say that this year is the most likely just based on the ages and the typical um, career arcs. You know, Westbrook is now in year 11, Harden's in year 10 of NBA players, especially guys with workloads that heavy. So, uh, you know, my guess, I think he'll end up paying the tax this year, but it's 100% a fair question because he's put the target on himself with that quote basically saying that, you know, if we're going to win a championship, it's got to be the next three or four years. Okay, well, you're saying that, it, it, you know, it, it would bode really poorly if even with a window that's this limited and this open, that he's not willing to pay the tax. Because, you know, if he's not willing to do that, then, I mean, holy crap, what's he going to do when, uh, you know, when you don't have a championship window? That type of thing, you know, which obviously can really curtail your rebuilding efforts. So I think, you know, ultimately, I think a lot of the fears are overblown, but it's on him, number one, to you know, prove the doubters wrong. And number two, answer those questions because he's put that timeline out there himself. And so the natural question, if you're going to put that much pressure on the here and now is, you know, are you willing to be fully committed to giving them the best chance that, uh, that they can have to win? Yeah. And fans don't want to hear about the, the repeater tax. Like they, they don't like they got, they gave them a pass last year. Cause I, I thought fans could have been even more outraged 
when the Rockets missed the luxury tax last year, when they chose to, you know, it was a kind of a crime of opportunity. They they fully expected to pay the luxury tax, but a situation came up where they could avoid it. So I'm not going to give them too much crap for that because, yeah, like it, it was something that they didn't expect to be in that kind of a situation. And it's not like they, ha- they you know, they hemorrhaged their depth too much to do that. So this season, it, like there are clear opportunities to where the Rockets could make a trade and significantly get better and, and dip into luxury tax. And as you said, if he truly believes the next three or four years are the best, you know, window of opportunity to win a championship, well, why not go all out and spend as much as you possibly can for those next three or four years? Because you know you're not going to be spending after those three or four years. Like Harden and Westbrook are going to come off of contracts soon after that, and you have an opportunity to where you can be a building, a rebuilding team, and sort of kind of you know, skirt the luxury tax, skirt paying a lot of money. Like if you know that that's the kind of situation your roster is going to be in, go all out, pay one year of the repeater tax, you know, like, yep. it, I, I know it's easy for me to say, cause it's not my money, but I mean, the, he knew what he was doing when he bought the team. He did. Like, he knew the kind of situation this, the, this team was in. He knew that this team was in legitimate chance, had a legitimate chance to contend for an NBA championship. So, I, I don't think fans are going to give him a pass this year if, if he does indeed avoid the luxury tax. No, especially because the owner is some someone that's going to be there for 35, 40 years. You know, that's kind of the thing that's always kind of nagging at the pit of your stomach because even as the players change, we're talking about long-term of the Houston Rockets franchise, even after, unfortunately, James Harden, Russell Westbrook, this current group are long gone. You know, Fertitta, his family, most likely, you never say 100%, but most likely they're going to be the guys in charge. And then, you know, if they don't invest even with this group, and that's worrisome that even if, you know, you get another transcendent hardened type player down the road and have a chance to win, you know, it's always kind of hovering over you, you, you know, and the, the other side of this, you know, I'll give an example. I know not everybody listening is like a baseball fan, but I'm sure you notice the, you know, the huge sense of optimism about the Astros in Houston. Of course, it helps they won the title two years ago, but also the degree to which the ownership you know, it changed a few years ago, led by Jim Crane, continues to spend. You know, they re-signed Berlander before the year at like $33 million a year. They traded for Zach Grinke at the deadline, who makes like close to 35. They're getting like a small amount chipped in from his uh, former team. But the point is, they have gone above and beyond anything the franchise has ever done before, payroll-wise, the commitment. You know, clearly they're winning, so you get more fans, you get more merchandise sales, postseason revenues, yada, yada. But they're investing that, and so I think that's part of the belief, you know, why people are so excited about the Astros. You know, sure, they're winning games now, but they also feel, you know, because the ownership is good, it's like, hey, you know, even if, you know, some of these guys, you know, George Springer, Carlos Correa, when they're free agents the next two or three years, even if some of these guys leave, because there's trust in ownership, they're like, hey, you know, we'll be okay because even if, you know, it's never going to be this great all the time, like winning three division titles in a row, you're, you have some confidence that – the ownership is willing to do what it takes. Whereas with Tillman, you shouldn't have confidence. You shouldn't have no confidence. You know, he hasn't shown you by any means. He's one of the worst owners in the NBA, but at the same time, it's early. The jury is still out. And if he doesn't do it with this particular Rockets group, you know, obviously it's disappointing because number one, you want to maximize this window, but then, you know, with ownership, it just, if they don't spend with this group, then it becomes just this kind of thing that's hovering over in which you wonder you know, not just the next couple of years, but really as long as he's alive, you know, the, the ownership of the team, it, you know, you wonder, you know, hey, even if these things do work out to where the stars line and you can be a contender again, you know, is he willing to maximize that window? And so that's why the ownership question is so important. You know, it's not just about the next uh, year or two. Potentially, it's about the next 40 years. So, yeah, it's a huge question. 
Yeah, I like that. Jim Crane putting on the pressure for the Rockets, man. Setting a good I example like the, yeah. for this team. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah I, I agree. I, I think it is something, uh, it is worrisome if he, if he does indeed dodge the tax this year. And, you know, again, like, uh, Rockets fans do not care about the repeater tax anymore. Like, the, you, you got away with that excuse last year. This year, I don't think it's going to fly. I, I don't, and I I think he's going to get a lot, a lot more a lot more media scrutiny. I mean, you're starting to yep. hear whispers now, but it, it's not it's not as pronounced as you know other owners in the NBA. But it, if he d- indeed d- you know chooses to dodge the tax this year, those whispers are going to get louder. Those whispers are going to become screams, and and then yep. it's it's going to be something kind of hovering over the fan base, and it's 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 something you don't want if you're an, if you're an owner. Um, I'm going to cheat here. I, I have one more thing I I want to I'm looking forward to at media day. I want to ask Mike D'Antoni if he really is cool with his contract situation because like, oh, yeah. right right now it seems like everyone's cordial, right? It seems like ownership, coaching staff, like every, everyone's okay with how things stand. But I mean, there has to be some sort of discomfort there being on the last year of your contract and not being able to get negotiations done this summer and knowing that the next time to negotiate – uh, according to the Rockets, it's going to be next summer. It seems like there's not going to be like a sudden, you know, negotiation midseason where they they hammer out a deal. It seems like they they, they want to really delay the talks until next summer. So I I want to know if if all sides are truly okay with that and if everything's okay in that situation because I know they're saying yeah. right now that it, like that you know Mike D'Antoni is going to coach his hardest. He doesn't care about the contract. He's going to play. He's going to play yeah. it out. But it, it it's just human nature to wonder and kind of have that stuff linger. Yeah, I think so too. And it, you know, the question, yeah, it's more for D'Antoni and the Rockets. I mean, my guess, I don't think the Rockets are that apprehensive about it because just the reality, there's not that many teams for which you know Mike D'Antoni he'll be 69 years old next off season. I don't think there's that many teams that would give him, you know, extremely lucrative offers because for two thirds of the league that isn't contending, you know, let's say you're the Charlotte Hornets, for example, what sense does it make if you're in a rebuilding situation to hire a coach who only has, you know, two or three years left? I think that's a timeline that he gave uh, Woj earlier this summer. Speaking about D'Antoni, if you're a rebuilding team, why does it make sense to commit that much money for a coach who, you know, by the time you could reasonably hope to maybe be, you know, a playoff team, a quasi contender, you're going to have to reboot with a, a new coach, especially with a system as uh, unique as D'Antoni's. And then, of course, amongst the contenders who he would make sense for, there's really not that many vacancies amongst that top tier. So I just think that, you know, from the Rockets standpoint, you know, of course, I think they'd ideally like to extend him, but I think they feel like they kind of have the upper hand in negotiations just because next offseason, I'm just not sure how many teams a 69-year-old Mike D'Antoni makes sense for. You know, it's kind of like, you know, the Spurs kind of go year to year with Greg Popovich because the alternative isn't really Pop going somewhere else. The alternative is Pop retiring just because of his age. That's just kind of what comes with the territory. And so I think the Rockets feel like they have some leverage in that regard, which they don't have to go, you know, above and beyond salary-wise to keep him. And that's understandable from a business perspective. But yeah, you're right. There is, uh, you know, a human and emotional component to that too. And, and I'm sure underneath it all, even if he doesn't say it to us, it's worth the question. Maybe he, you know, politely dodges it again, but I'm sure on some level, you know, there has to at least be a little bit of maybe annoyance is the right word. I'm not sure from Dan Tony, you know, feeling like that, you know, if he were a few years younger, he'd probably be, you know, in a much better negotiating position based on the merits of his production, which 
you know, I looked it up, even though he hasn't won a title, not only is D'Antoni the winningest coach uh, percentage-wise in regular season Rockets history, he's also the most winningest postseason coach by a winning percentage, even over Rudy Tanjanovich, who won two titles. You know, they've had a lot of success these last three years, winning at least one postseason series every time. So, you know, based on the merits, you know, you can see why he would think that, hey, I deserve this big deal. And he's a really good coach. I just think, you know, his age is sort of the elephant in the room that gives the Rockets a certain leverage in negotiations or probably will. You never know. We'll see how they play out if he becomes truly a free agent next May or June, whenever the Rockets season is up. But yeah, on some level, I think it has to at least nag at him a little bit. I agree. Yeah. Well, this was great. Ben, go ahead and plug your podcast, and where can we follow you on Twitter? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Locked on Rockets, and just follow me, yeah, at Ben Dubose on Twitter or at Locked on Rockets, the show on Twitter. You can subscribe to the Red Nation News podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Follow me on Twitter at Salman Ali NBA. And yeah, guys, good night. <laughs>